delighted to know that Dr. O'Donnell and I are not perpetual and felicity uh, for your sake, because if you read the second reading in the Office of Readings today, you would know that perpetual and felicity were fed to wild beasts, and you know what that makes you. So thank you, Tim, for that reassuring <laughs> introduction, reassuring to all present. Uh, it's a great uh, pleasure to be here. I have been a, an enormous fan of Christendom College for many years and a, uh, honored to call Tim and Kathy O'Donnell my, uh, my good friends. I want to speak particularly to the students here tonight. I know there's some slightly older people here, but uh, I want to speak particularly to the students tonight about how the achievement of John Paul II, which I describe in great uh, detail in the third part of this new book, The End and the Beginning, uh, in fact flowed from decisions he made when he was your age. This is worth pondering as you spend this semester here uh, in the city where he lived for 26 and a half years, where he'll be beatified on May 1st, and where I'm sure many of you have already visited uh, his grave. And I want to begin with the night of February 18th, 1941. It's a typically freezing cold uh, night during a typically freezing cold Polish winter, and young Carol Wojtyla, dressed in raggedy blue jeans and wooden clogs, uh, had walked home from the chemical factory where he was a manual laborer, stopped at a friend's uh, home to pick up a bucket of supper for himself and the aged and ill father, uh, and came to his small apartment to find that his father had died during the day. This was but the latest blow in a year and a half of hard blows for this remarkably talented uh, young man. Uh, he had come to the Agalonian University in Krakow to study Polish language and literature and had made a very fine record in his first uh, year. He had participated in the dramatic program of the university uh, given his interests in the uh, theater uh, and he had lived with the man who was the primary influence uh, on his personal, spiritual, and intellectual development in the first 18 years of his life, namely his father. Carol Wojtyla's mother had died before he was nine years old, and it was his father who was the chief formative influence on his life, a man who modeled integrity, piety, and manliness uh, to him to come home and find that anchor for his life, dead in bed, was, as you can imagine, a shattering experience. He knelt by the side of his father's body, prayed for a while, and later said, I never felt so alone. His mother had died 10 years before, Father had just died. His older brother, a doctor, had died while caring for a scarlet fever patient in a local hospital and had caught the disease himself. A sister he never knew had been born and died shortly after childbirth. Uh, 
everyone, as he later put it, whom I loved or whom I might have loved had been taken from me. This experience, and indeed the entire experience of the Second World War, an experience of extraordinary degradation for Polish people, uh, for the Nazis were not simply interested in occupying Poland and exploiting its resources, they were interested over the medium and long haul in decimating the population of Poland uh, and in fact ending the population of Poland. Uh, Poles were to be fed a minimal caloric uh, intake. Uh, schools were forbidden beyond elementary reading and arithmetic. Uh, Poles as a race were to be worked to death for the greater glory of the Third Reich. That experience, the experience of of, as he once put it to me over dinner, the experience of being humiliated at the hands of evil. Uh, that experience and then this sudden and shocking death of his father intensified the vocational wrestling that had been underway in this young man's mind and heart and soul for some uh, years. Uh, and out of that wrestling came a decision, a decision to dedicate his life to the defense of human dignity in the midst of this disciplined degradation to which he and others were being subjected, and to do that as a Catholic priest. And so some 18 months after his father's death, he came in the fall of 1942 to the archbishop's residence in Krakow to present himself as a candidate for the priesthood. The seminary had, of course, been shut down by the occupation. The seminary itself was being used as a jail at the time, although given seminary life uh, in those days, some of the seminarians might not have thought that a dramatic change in the circumstances of the building. Uh, he presented himself as a seminarian and was accepted by the heroic archbishop of Krakow, Adam Stefan Sapieha, and began two years as an underground seminarian, as a clandestine seminarian. It was not to be known that he was doing this. So he continued his work as a manual laborer at the Salve chemical plant while studying by night uh, or early in the morning uh, the texts that were assigned to him and then returning clandestinely to the archbishop's residence uh, for exams, for spiritual direction, to serve the Archbishop's Mass, and so forth. Those two years of clandestine seminary life, which lasted until he was 24 years old, abruptly ended in August 1944. On August 1st, 1944, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, a great uprising against the Nazi occupation broke out in Warsaw, the famous Warsaw Uprising. Uh, to forestall such a similar event in Krakow, the Gestapo began to arrest every young man in the city. Uh, Archbishop Sapieha got the word out through a network of literally runners, uh, people going around to other people's homes. There were no phones. There certainly were no cell phones. There was no Twitter at this point, or Tweeter, or whatever this thing is called. You couldn't put on your Facebook page, Archbishop says, come in quickly. Uh, so the word was sent out to some two dozen of these seminarians to come to the archbishop's house where they were all given cassocks 
The archbishop intended to tell the Gestapo, should it come, that these were his secretaries, large secretarial pool at hand here, and these young men spent the next six months literally underground uh, in the archbishop's uh, residence. Uh, their dormitory was his former dining room. Their classroom was his former drawing room. Perhaps most importantly, every night they saw this great man, then in his mid-70s, an elderly man, go each night to the chapel where he presented the extraordinary problems of leading this flock under a draconian uh, persecution to the Lord in prayer. Uh, and in that experience, I think, was formed uh, a heroic image of the priest and bishop as defender of the rights of the human person in this very talented young man who would become John Paul II. The man who would change history himself as the Bishop of Rome uh, emerged from that underground seminary in January 1945, a whole man and a fully formed mature adult who would be ordained to the priesthood uh, some uh, 22 months later. How had he been formed? He had been formed, as I mentioned a moment ago, by the example of his father whose most important lesson to him, perhaps, was his example. The example of a man for whom manliness and piety were not opposites, but who went uh, together. Uh, he was formed by the influence of uh, the great archbishop, whose name I mentioned a moment ago, Adam Stefan Sapieha. A remarkable story, a man who was rather a conventional ecclesiastical bureaucrat for most of his life, who found himself at age 70 the senior representative of the church in occupied Poland, and who suddenly became a hero, who suddenly became a man of immense strength and uh, uh, vigor in the defense uh, of his people. And this man, who was so revered by the end of the war, that he, when he was created a cardinal in January 1946, by Pius XII and came back to Rome, uh, from Rome uh, to Krakow by train. The, the train was met at the station by an enormous mob of people. And when the new cardinal got into his car, the students picked up the car and carried the car back to his residence as a gesture of their regard for him. Perhaps most interestingly, this fully formed young Carol Voitu uh, had been spiritually directed by a layman, uh, a very curious character whose beatification cause is now under investigation here in Rome, named Jan Tiranowski. Jan Tiranowski was a tailor by trade, a man who had no more than an eighth grade education, but who had made himself into an autodidact uh, expert in the spirituality of the Carmelite mystics, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, and who, after spending the morning working in his family tailoring shop, uh, spent the rest of the day in a program of contemplative prayer and meditation that was perhaps more rigorous than any being observed, even in the strictest of religious houses in Krakow at that time. Tiranowski happened to live 
in one of these coincidences that are really providences at work, Taranofsky happened to live around the corner from Karol Wojtyła's parish church in Krakow. And when, in 1940, the Gestapo arrested six of the seven Silesian priests at the parish of St. Stanisław Kostka and set them off to Dachau, where three of them later died as martyrs, the remaining priest asked Taranofsky to take on what we would call the parish youth ministry. So Taranofsky began to form the young men of the parish uh, into what he called living rosary groups. Fifteen young men for the 15 mysteries of what was then the complete rosary, uh, led by a particularly mature young man called an animator, one of whom was Karol Wojtyla. Taranofsky must have sensed that this literarily inclined, theatrically inclined, poetically inclined youngster would have resonated with John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. So he began to give him uh, the works of the great Carmelite mystics and to work through those texts with him. He also, Taranofsky, introduced Wojtyla to the Marian theology of St. Louis Grignon de Montfort uh, through his famous text, True Devotion to Mary, which taught Wojtyla through Taranofsky that all true devotion to Our Lady is, is Christological and Trinitarian. Mary's function in the New Testament is in a sense summed up in the last recorded words of Our Lady in the New Testament which we all remember were, do whatever he tells you. Now, preachers often emphasize the whatever, the miracle, the wine and the water turned into wine. I was going to say wine turned into water. That sounds like prohibition. Um, water turned into wine. Montfort suggests that what's really key is the pronoun. Do whatever he tells you. Our lady points to her son, and because her son is both son of God as, as well as son of Mary, by pointing to her son, she points us into the very heart of the Trinity. So, Taranofsky, through Montfort, introduces young Karol Wojtyla, who, as he wrote later, 50 years later, in his memoir, Gift and Mystery, uh, was dissatisfied with the conventional Marian piety of the town in which he grew up. Taranofsky introduced him to this richer Christological and Trinitarian uh, aspect of devotion to Our Lady. What came out of all of this formation was radical discipleship. In the 15 years I spent pondering the life, thought, and action of Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, and over 12 years, uh, well, 15 years, almost 20 years of uh, intense personal conversation with him, uh, I finally came to the conclusion that what explained this life, what lay at the bottom of this extraordinary achievement, both for the church and the world, was a radically converted Christian disciple. A man who by the time he was your age, or perhaps just a little bit older, had become so convinced of the truth of which St. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 12, the more excellent way of Christian love. 
he had been so seized by this that he decided to spend out his life in defense of the human, of the dignity of the human person through that more excellent way in the priesthood of the Catholic Church. And everything uh, in this life uh, up till its dramatic end in April 2005, everything flowed from this. The priest, the philosopher, the poet, the bishop, the pope, the statesman. All of this was an expression of his radically converted Christian discipleship. And that's worth emphasizing, I think, as we approach his beatification, because that's his connection, if you will, to all of us. Very few of us are going to bring to our lives uh, the richness of human qualities uh, that was bestowed upon Carol Fortuna. I think very few of us are going to speak eight or nine languages, uh, write uh, eminent works in philosophy, write distinguished poems and plays, um, uh, change the course of history, etc., etc. But what all of us have the possibility of being, by the grace of God bestowed on us in baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit in confirmation, is to be those radically and great things can flow from your discipleship as they flowed from his. In the pontificate of John Paul II, I think the most powerful and developed expression of this notion of radical discipleship uh, was the encyclical Redemptoris Missio, the mission of the Redeemer, uh, dated in uh, December 1991, actually issued, actually December 1990, and issued in 1991. And in that rich reflection on the evangelical character of the church, the Pope made three points that I think are important for all of you as you ponder your vocations during this semester in Rome. The first of these uh, is that the church is a mission. The church doesn't have a mission as if mission were one among seven or eight other things that the church has. The church is a mission. The church exists for the proclamation of the gospel and the extension of an invitation to friendship with Jesus Christ. Everything else that goes on in the church is an expression or ought to be an expression of the mission of the church. So the church is a mission, John Paul II taught. The church doesn't have a mission. That means, secondly, that all are evangelists. Everyone uh, is an evangelist. Every Christian vocation, whether it's to married life or consecrated life or the ordained ministry of the church, uh, is a missionary vocation. Every vocation is a missionary vocation. At the end of the year, when you think back on the calendar year that's changing, uh, hopefully not while watching all of that idiocy in Times Square in New York, uh, doing something a little more edifying than that. Uh, ask yourself the question, how many people have I introduced to Jesus this past year? How many, people who, how many people's experience of the Lord have I helped deepen? Everyone is a missionary. And that leads, of course, to the third and parallel teaching in, in uh, Radium Taurus Misio. Everywhere is mission territory. 
Everywhere is mission territory. I once saw a picture of a sign that looked like a fake traffic sign uh, at the edge of a parking lot, and I think it was a Baptist church somewhere in the south. And uh, the sign said, as people were leaving church, leaving the parking lot, driving out, it said, you are entering mission territory. We should have one of those at the end of the parking lot uh, of every Catholic church in the United States. You are entering mission territory. Everywhere is missionary territory. It's either an evangelical opportunity to deepen the faith that people have already received or an opportunity to introduce people to the glory of the human condition, which they don't know yet if they have not met met the uh, Lord. This, by the way, was why John Paul II put so much emphasis on the Great Jubilee of 2000, which he frequently described as the key to his entire pontificate. He wanted the Great Jubilee of 2000 to be something other than an enormous global birthday party for baby Jesus. This was not the idea. The idea was for the entire church to experience a new Pentecost, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit, so that it could enter the third millennium of its history with a great burst of evangelical energy and, as the Pope put it in his apostolic letter, closing the great jubilee of 2000, Novo Millennio in Aunte, a phrase which I'm sure I do not have to translate for Christendom College uh, students, but did have to translate at Notre Dame. Uh, to put out into the deep uh, of, a new, uh, of a new millennium. The church, he insisted, is not about institutional maintenance. maintenance. The church is about evangelism. The institution of the church exists for the mission of the church. Now, this, needless to say, uh, offers us a demanding kind of Catholicism. And this is perhaps the great shift embodied in the Second Vatican Council and in the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI that the church is just beginning to grasp. For some 400 years after the Reformation, the Catholic Church existed through a kind of catechetical, pietistic model in which you learned your catechism, you learned some prayers, there were certain behaviors that went with being Catholic, and that was kind of it. That was kind of it. Uh, that was important in its time. It was crucial as a way to offer a generally uneducated population a way of being Catholic, appropriate for, for their uh, times. But throughout the 20th century, the deepest thinkers of the church, whether that was in the liturgical movement, the renewal of biblical studies, or the renewal of Catholic philosophy and theology that really begins in the late 19th century with Leo XIII and the revival of, of Thomas Aquinas, it was understood this was not enough. In, in, the, in the emerging modern world, this catechetical, pietistic Catholicism uh, was not wrong, it was just insufficient. And what was needed was an evangelical, biblical, liturgical Catholicism 
in which the mission of the church, not the institutional maintenance fostered by the catechetical pietistic form of Catholicism, but evangelical Catholicism, the mission of the church was fed by the Bible, was fed by the liturgy, was fed by a renewal of Catholic intellectual life and a rediscovery of the fathers uh, of the church uh, and the great medieval theologians whose work you're encountering uh, here. This Catholicism of the 21st century is a demanding Catholicism. That's why it's so important that you're getting the kind of demanding education that you're receiving here at Christendom College. This this new Catholicism, which is in fact the old Catholicism, it's the Catholicism of the Acts of the Apostles, demands knowledge, it demands courage, uh, because it is inevitably countercultural, inevitably countercultural, uh, whether it's in Africa or in uh, Front Royal Virginia. This is countercultural stuff. And it, it demands discipline. It demands uh, a, a real forming of uh, character uh, in all of us. It can also demand more dramatic, some more dramatic forms of sacrifice. And here is something else to ponder as you uh, discover this city of martyrs, uh, this city which is the center of the church because it is the city uh, blessed by the martyrdom of, of Peter and Paul. Uh, as you go to all of these churches and encounter the tombs of the martyrs and the relics of the martyrs and study here in this building, which is less than 500 yards from where St. Peter was crucified, think about this. You were born in the greatest century of martyrdom in Christian history. The greatest century of martyrdom in Christian history is not the first century, the second century, the third century. It's the 20th century. In fact, the Jubilee, uh, the, uh, the Commission on New Martyrs uh, of the Great Jubilee, uh, which was appointed by John Paul II, estimated that more Christians gave their lives for the faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries of Christian history taken together. So, if Tertullian was right that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church, then there's another reason to expect a great springtime of evangelization, as John Paul II called it, in the 21st century. There was such an effusion of blood uh, in the name of that we can expect, if we have the knowledge and the courage and the discipline for it, for this demanding Catholicism, to be part uh, of a new springtime uh, in the 21st century. Uh, to make that happen, uh, the church needs witnesses and the Lord needs witnesses. And the last months of John Paul II's life, which I'd just like to reflect on with you briefly at the end of this talk, was his last great act of priestly witness. Uh, that was six years ago. So y'all were, what, early teenagers at that point, high school, maybe late elementary school. Uh, 
it was an extraordinarily dramatic experience in which the suffering and death uh, of this young man whose life we were talking about a half an hour ago is not so different from yours, although perhaps dramatically heightened by the experiences of the war. This young man who had become, uh, as Dr. O'Donnell said, John Paul the Great, did something quite remarkable. He invited the whole world, not just the church, but the whole world, uh, to live through his passion, his suffering and death with him. Why? Because that's what priests do. Priests exist in the church to introduce the people of the church and the world to the paschal mystery of suffering and death transformed by Easter. And it was this paschal mystery to which John Paul was conforming himself uh, that he invited everyone into through an experience of his experience. And perhaps the great image of that, which is one of the photographs I chose to use in the end and the beginning, uh, came from Good Friday, the last Good Friday of John Paul's life. Uh, and I'm sure many of you have seen it. The Pope was unable to go to the Colosseum for the traditional way of the cross, so a television was brought into the chapel uh, of the papal apartment so he could participate that way. Uh, and there was a photograph of him taken from the back uh, with the television, you can see him watching the television, and he's embracing this very large crucifix. And next morning on, I think it was the Today Show, I was being bludgeoned with questions. Why are they only showing his back? Is it because he looks so awful? I said, no, you're missing the whole point. The previous 26 and a half years of his life were not John Paul II saying, say, saying, look at me. They were the Pope saying, look at Jesus Christ. And that's what he was doing in that picture. He was doing what he had asked everyone else to do for 26 and a half years. And it's that radical discipleship, that ability to facilitate the work of grace in the lives of others through the grace at work in his own life that the church will acknowledge uh, on May 1st uh, when it declares him blessed uh, and says that yes, this was indeed a life uh, of heroic virtue, which is an exemplar for, uh, for everyone else. Uh, finally, finally, just a word about John Paul II and young people. I must have been asked several hundred times over the last 15 years, what was the Pope's attraction for the young? The conventional explanation, of course, is that this was some kind of goofball, uh, Gen X or Gen Y or Gen Z, whatever you people are supposed to be, uh, uh, celebrity craziness. This is, this is absolute rubbish. Uh, there were two reasons why this worked. Uh, the first was transparency. Uh, one of the things uh, that's greatest about being your age is that you have a great nose for hypocrisy and falseness and a great appreciation for truth. You can smell somebody who's faking it uh, a long way away. Uh, and I think young people found in John Paul II a transparently good man who was not asking you to do anything that he hadn't done. He was not asking you to bear any burden that he hadn't borne or to take any risk that he hadn't uh, taken.
And the second was precisely that challenge. Uh, all of you have grown up in a culture that constantly panders to young people. Uh, he did not pander to you. Uh, he told you you were capable through the grace of God of great things and never, ever, ever settled for anything less than the spiritual and moral greatness that the grace of God makes possible in your life. And young people responded to that by the millions, uh, as I hope you will too, particularly through this uh, special time uh, in Rome, which you're so uh, privileged to have. So thank you for your attention and 